to the 4 for Friday podcast. I'm Will Rob. He's Michael Girdley. It's just the two of us today, no guests. Michael, would you like to briefly tell everybody what the format is? Yeah. Every week, Will and I get together and we discuss four topics uh, posed as questions. And uh, we get in, we get done in 20, 25 minutes, and we move on and come back next week. So uh, let's see who's going first this week. It is me. All right, Will, business idea. What do you think of kid-friendly restaurants located near airports and construction sites? So basically imagine Rainforest Cafe, but instead of looking at fake animatronic animals, you get to see airplanes, diggers, or backhoes. What do you think? Okay, now I get the question. So you're saying there's some some built-in theater there for kids to watch. Totally. uh, In construction sites and airports. And so your restaurant doesn't need as much of a theme. Totally. Well, your theme is we're located next to an airport and you can see the runway. And so you see the guys driving around in little carts. You see the, the airplanes flying, landing, taking off. You see the private jets taking off. You see the mechanics. You see the people putting fuel into them, luggage loading, everything a kid could want. Well, that's the, I mean, I think, I think at its face, a kid-friendly restaurant near an airport is a good idea just because traveling with a family is difficult and you're going to need to stop and find a place to eat. And if somebody can provide a good service in that space, uh, certainly there will be customers who need a convenient meal that's, uh, that works for their kids. Uh, and I think the built-in theater is helpful. Is this idea a little bit boy centric airplanes and uh, backhoes and cranes? Oh, you are speaking like the father of some daughters. I totally dig it. (laughs) Okay, fine. You could have like a, I don't know. What are your daughters into princesses? Actually, they'd be interested in planes. They're pretty (laughs) interested in airplanes and those things. And they're interested in cars. I don't think they're interested in construction equipment uh, yeah, and I don't know that, that those interests will, will stay as they get older because they're also interested in dolls and dresses and kind of girl-centric things. Yeah. What, what would, what, what's an idea for a name for a kid-friendly restaurant that would appeal to kids who want to see uh, airplanes or <laughs> well, building projects? It's funny. I tweeted this question and ended up with lots of people giving opinions on it and giving me links to existing uh, airport dine-in options that would uh, allow you to, to do exactly this. And there are all right. these names that are funny because they tend to like uh, appeal to adults. So for example, Palomar Airport, which is in San Diego County, has a restaurant on premise called The Landings. Like, it doesn't appeal to kids at all, right? They, you know, it needs to be called Zoomers or something like that. That would totally appeal to them. Well, it sounds like a lot of those names are probably like the the real estate practice of picking a name that has kind of broad positive associations, but doesn't really mean anything. Yeah. Here's some other so ones. Maybe maybe you could get some kid positive associations that doesn't really mean anything. Here's here's some ones uh, near LAX. There's a food hall called the Proud Bird. Uh, there's one in Camarillo, California called the Waypoint Cafe. And uh, outside the Atlanta Hartsfield Jackson International Airport is a place called Fighter 57. Okay. Yeah. So I think the big thing about this is is the airports you can do it at are totally limited 
because if you say, for example, at the San Antonio International Airport where I am, you're basically the closest I think you can get without being on airport property is like a half a mile away. So those guys would all look very tiny and the airplanes would not look very big and very interesting. So I think it's a challenge to find an airport that's both busy enough and you can get up close enough to, to have it be interesting, you know, at SFO or something like that, like it's just impossible. Well, yeah. And you'd have to be careful about your physical building itself, because if this is the premise of your idea, the, uh, the tables far away from the windows are not that helpful. Yeah. Uh, construction sites also tricky because construction sites, you know, a lot of those projects take a long time, but they're by their nature, a temporary project. So what about, what about food trucks that, that found little spots of land near construction sites? Right. Uh, I like it. I like it. Um, you know, I have noticed this propensity for people to forget how much habit plays into the success of stuff. So one of the things that happens here in, in San Antonio, though, is we have this thing called Ciclovia, which is like they close down the streets and people go bike around. It's a pretty common thing. But like the organizers keep moving the location of it like every time. So, so people don't know where to go. They don't figure it out, right? It's just a total mess. So I would worry about the ability to build a big or a decent restaurant business around, you know, pop-ups at random construction site here and there and expecting parents to find their way there. It's just, it's just a hassle and, and well, probably yeah, something I mean, hurts the idea. The effort it would take to open a new restaurant, you know, that by itself could take, you know, a year and a half. And so you finally get open and then the construction site is, it, the project is done and in three months. Yep. So that seems like you'd, you'd need something more temporary or mobile if that's what you were trying to capitalize on. Yeah. All right. Well, I'll put this in the bucket of somebody else should do this idea. All right. Okay. Moving on to number two. Uh, question for you, Will. What other products will go direct to consumer? So to, to illustrate this, I just bought a high-end bicycle direct to consumer. Um, okay. So when online, it's not sold through a local dealer, you know, basically it is put in my credit card and they send me a very expensive bicycle. Like a, I bought like a $2,900 entry level carbon road bike. Um, so what is the, what, what else will go direct to consumer? We've seen bicycles, we've seen, uh, we've seen mattresses kind of famously go direct to consumer. So what other things would you imagine going direct to consumer that currently are sold through dealers or through other channels? Before we launch into that, can you give one other example of something that's gone direct to consumer recently? Recently? Hmm, I think. I mean, some of the other ones that come to mind are things like diamonds uh, have gone direct to consumer. Um, allow me to Google D to C brands uh, so I can totally cheat this answer. Dollar Shave Club, Warby Parker with glasses, Blue Apron with food, Cards Against Humanity with games. Um, those are some of the ones that come up. Um, Bonobos, which is a uh, clothing company. Mm -hmm. um, Bark Box, which I think is a uh, a uh, recurring revenue subscription box for that type of stuff. Uh -huh. uh, Harry's for shaving and Me Undies for uh, for glasses. No, I'm just kidding. They sell underwear. <laughs> okay, okay. I mean, they're likely to be our, our first ever sponsor for the podcast because they seem to sponsor every podcast. <laughs> so we might as well just you give a plug for them here. Um, 
but you know i also think of stitch fix and those other kind of uh you know fashion-based services that are subscription-based mail directly to your house after they learn a little bit about your your style and your sizes yep um you know i think this will always be a thing i'm not sure that all products will go direct to consumer in the future i'm not sure that it will take over our lives and i guess part of the question is is stuff you order on Amazon direct to consumer or is Amazon uh, your middleman that makes that an indirect experience? Uh, I think it's definitely an indirect experience. And what separates it there is Amazon owns the customer relationship and the discovery of the product. Mm -hmm. So that, that makes it an indirect type scenario. Brands can still have leverage on there, but in the end, Amazon has your credit card number. You know, to me, it's like who has the credit card number or the wire number? That's the person who owns the customer experience. Okay. So I think the interesting thing here is I Googled this and I was like, oh my God, look at all these like ridiculous numbers of D2C products. Um, mm -hmm. I think the next thing that will happen is, is twofold. I think number one, you'll continue to see like this expansion. Like at some point, someone's going to do direct consumer lawnmowers, right? It's stupid that you go to Home Depot or these different places and they only have crappy lawnmowers. So I think there'll be some of that going on. I think the big thing that people haven't figured out yet in terms of D2C is how do we do better direct-to-consumer style services, right, to people's to people's homes, uh, especially for in in consumers, right, um, or even for SMBs. How do we figure out how to do uh, much cleaner B2B small-scale services? For example, most small businesses that I know currently all of their IT stuff, they have somebody in the company who's just kind of struggling through it. Like it's so hard to find good people around that stuff. So I think the next the next thing in D2C is actually figuring out how to make this consumer discovery model and engagement model feel more like the, the model you get when you go online or you buy a Casper or, a, or in my case, a Canyon bicycle. Like that's still got to get figured out from that services standpoint. Okay. Uh, do you think direct-to-consumer is good for highly customizable products or not good for highly customizable products? It's interesting. Um, I think it's something- Was your, I, was your electric yeah. bike highly customized? Uh, my electric bike is definitely, uh, so for the listeners at home, I took an old bike and I converted it to be an electric bike. So yeah, that's highly customized because I bought all the pieces for it and I built it. Um, I, I, I think it was- definitely highly customized in that way. And I just bought components that were there. Um, in terms of the like off the shelf bicycle that I bought, it is not highly customized. It's just like, you know, for me, I'm six foot five. So it's pretty easy to size stuff. Just send me whatever the biggest thing you have is. Uh, so, so it's pretty easy to do. Um, but it was not highly customized in that regard. They have, you know, in that, in that span of SKUs, I think a dozen or so SKUs. And it's just like, this is what you get. These are the components you get, tires and so on. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, sometimes RVs are sold this way where you deal directly with the, the company and then you can kind of specify the features that you want in the RV. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and particularly for RVs that have, have built something a little different or a brand recognition that's a little more important to consumers. Uh, this works for them. Um, for for a lot of these companies, I think they find that they'll they'll be direct consumer, but it also helps them to have retail outlets where they're not just direct to consumer. Right. So, you know, thinking about, you know, this is almost 30 years ago now, like Dell and Gateway and the rise of the direct consumer computer models, 
Uh, I'm sure you can still like order direct con consumer computers from Dell, but I bet most of their sales come through Amazon or Best Buy or some other electronics retailer. Yep. And even, even Apple who worked very hard to create these very specialized, very uh, finely tuned customer experience stores. You can, you can go buy a Mac in Costco now. So I think, you know, once companies get big enough, they don't stick uh, totally to just one uh, retail model for how they're going to distribute to their customer. Yep. They're happy to expand and take on partners. Hmm. It's very interesting. I do think you bring up Apple. I've, you know, I'm an Apple person. I, I own a couple of windows computers, but almost all Macs. And, uh, I've, they've gotten me away from buying my iPhone at AT&T. Like I buy it from, I buy it from their head, from the Apple website now unlocked. Like, I think they've done a good job of, of, of doing that, but they still have stores too. So really interesting. I, I think in the conclusion I would have and the answer to your question is it really depends upon the product and the target segment as to like how that all shakes out, right? Is it, is it, it the, Every product is different. Everything is different in terms of how that's going to get shaken out from a D2C standpoint. So just hard to tell. You just got to look at each one individually. Now, before we put this question away, I think we, we have to talk about Tesla, right? Because they're kind of one of the, the biggest, uh, fanciest new companies that's really pushing for this direct consumer model. And they're famously trying to avoid dealerships. And they definitely don't want third-party dealerships. So you have right. a Tesla store owned by Tesla rather than purchasing your, your Tesla from Reckenbach, Cadillac, Tesla, Volvo, or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. And they've gotten a lot of pushback because of the, the regulations around car dealerships and the way that that model was, was set up historically uh, between car manufacturers and dealerships. And in a lot of states, they've had challenges uh, being able to sell direct to consumer without a dealership. Uh, I think they've probably made a bunch of strides and and how they implement this, and they've probably gotten better about it. But to to the original question, are there other car manufacturers that could switch to the direct consumer model? I wish they would. I just went through buying a Subaru, and it was it was not a good experience. <laughs> I hate car dealers. <laughs> so we can maybe. Uh, a future I mean, that, that's kind of it, that's the ridiculous part, right? You wind up in the situation where you're negotiating with the middleman for the price of the car, and and you kind of know like, okay, their, their whole spread, their whole profit on this car is made on this negotiation. Yeah. Yeah. Or whatever scammy stuff they sell you in the back. We should talk about how we should talk about what is the best strategy to navigate car dealers in a future episode. All okay, right. We can do that. That's I, will write, I will write it down into our parking lot. You have the next question. Okay. Why is Bentonville a nice place to visit? Man, this is such a coincidental question because I am in Bentonville right now. And it's the second time I've been here this year. So uh, me and Mrs. Girdley drove up here uh, to spend some time away. Uh, people have asked as I've gone around to different stuff, like the local gym, they're like, why are you here? I'm like, well, all the fancier places were closed. <laughs> we couldn't go there. But it's actually a great place to go uh, for a number of reasons. Number one, uh, you can drive there within a day from much of the country. So it's 10 hour drive for us. Uh, very affordable. And then the coolest thing about it is it's small, so it's easily accessible. And it's about as much stuff as you would do in about three or four days of hanging out. And because uh, Walmart is headquartered here, you have a lot of kind of wealth that has um, 
sprinkled down from, from that company, brought back into a community of 50, 60,000 people. You have great, some great restaurants because of all the people that are traveling here. It's surprisingly cosmopolitan. Uh, my CrossFit gym uh, that I went to here to visit this week uh, is mostly, the classes are mostly a group of uh, me and uh, what look like Indian H-1B workers who are here working for Walmart, like super fun. Um, so really enjoying it. And then a couple of world-class museums and then fun stuff to do mountain biking, road biking, hiking, just great place to be out in nature. So um, we're really enjoying it. Highly recommend visiting Bentonville. Okay, great. Were you saying that the population is 50 or 60,000 people now, or it had been down that low and it grew again? Uh, it is 50,000 now. So let me Google that. There's a bunch of little towns up here. Um, Bentonville. So that relatively small size makes it a lot more approachable. If you don't totally know your way around or know where everything is, you can kind of figure it out in a few days. Yeah, 20. Yeah, it's like the downtown is really small. Uh, it's 55,000 people. And we're, we're here in the northwest corner of Arkansas. So basically, you know, butting up against Missouri and Oklahoma. And um, then there's a bunch of string of towns kind of working their way down from here. So Rogers, Fayetteville. Um, and a couple other ones that are here that basically are where like the university of Arkansas is and stuff like that. So it's a, it's a big metropolitan area. It just, um, is a little town inside of that metropolitan area, so to speak. Okay. Would you, would you want to live there? I could see myself living here. Yeah. Great. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it, it is nicer to be in those smaller communities where, where everything's a, a little bit more approachable in a, in a shorter drive and you feel like you're not competing with big lines and crowds and traffic jams. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Yeah. Can't, okay, can't let's move on to our fourth and final question. Yeah. Okay. Hypothetical here. I am a bootstrapper and I'm losing talent to higher paying VC backed companies. What do I do about this? Yeah. Pretty fun. The, uh, this is a question that actually an anonymous, uh, an anonymous friend of mine on Twitter asked me and I said, look, okay, I'll take this and I'll go put it out uh, to the public and see what kind of answers that you get. Uh, and it was really interesting to see what people thought about this. So, you know, the core problem is if you're a bootstrapper, uh, meaning you're building your business, you know, on your own, just from customer revenue or from your savings, what happens is, is potentially higher funded competitors who are willing to invest more in growth or even operate at a loss, those folks could outpay you for talent. So how do you deal with that? And th there were a lot of good answers. Um, you know, some people said give up, which I think was in the terrible answer, but you know, I, I was like, okay, well, not, not really there. Um, I think what was interesting also uh, was how people, I think, came to the same conclusion, which is you have to realize that money is only one component of the kind of work, work professional relationship that you have with, um, with your employee and employer, right? It's actually right. also about responsibility, prestige, the type of stuff you get to work on, uh, the type of people you're working with, uh, how inspiring the mission is or uninspiring your mission is. All of those things are things that you can start to think about, you know, how you create a compelling value proposition for your, uh, for your employees. Yeah, I mean, one answer to this question that, uh, that I thought of when you were talking about, well, some people said just give up is one obvious answer would be to become a higher paying 
VC backed company. You could find out, find some VC money and partner with some people so that you didn't have uh, as much uh, cash constraint on your hiring decisions. Mm -hmm. uh, and then the other thing I was thinking about speaks to what you're talking about. Uh, money is only one component of how people are compensated or why, why they choose to work where they work. Uh, I think one advantage of being a bootstrapper and using your own money uh, for your payroll is you're going to be able to, to know and you're really going to care about like, is this, is this talent, is this person really a talented person who's making a lot of contributions? And if so, I need to really work to, to keep them here, uh, both by how I treat them and the, the perks that I give them access to and the, the rewards I, I give them and the opportunities I give them, but also through their, their pay. Because I feel like uh, if you spend your own money on something, you spend a lot more time uh, scrutinizing whether it was a good use of your money. Yep. So I feel like there's a little bit of a built-in advantage for bootstrappers there, and that they're gonna they're gonna they're gonna feel that that paycheck and that compensation pretty pretty consistently. Yep, I totally agree with that. When I think that ties into this this broader idea is that a lot of people get into business without developing what I would consider kind of a, a, a strategy about how you're going to think about people and talent, right? And you want to have a strategy for how, how you're going to approach and win in each aspect of your business. Like how is your accounting going to be world-class? How is your, how is your sales methodology going to be world-class? How are you going to be unique in terms of how you approach each of those things? And too many people just kind of never evolve past that that point when you're first starting your company and a lot of your team building is just like, Hey, I know a guy and Hey, I know a guy and this person is somebody's cousin and they all kind of show up that way. You have to evolve past that as a CEO and a business owner to start to think strategically about how you can win in all aspects. And hiring is a big part of that one. How can you create a compelling value proposition for people to not only want to come to your company, but stay there after you get them? Um, it's pretty hard to do for sure. Well, I think one one aspect of that is, yeah, if you own the company, if it's if it's your company and you're driving the bus, there are certain decisions that are really hard to outsource, and so your approach to hiring and retaining talent, you, you can't just hire an HR manager to do that. Maybe you want to bring in somebody who's good at that, but you can't say, well, I'm just a software guy. I'm not really a people person, and you can't say, well, I'm I'm just a an engineer. I'm not really a finance guy, or I'm just a finance guy. I'm not really a, a people person. It, it's one of those decisions where you have to understand it and be involved with it. Yep. You can't just say, well, I'm not really good with people. So I'm going to hire, hire one person who's going to run this for me. Yeah. It's a great point. All right, man. Well, I think we kicked that, kicked the, kicked that one uh, into the dirt. So I'm good to uh, call it a day for today. I, okay. How would you, how would you rate today? Was it like a 12 out of 10, maybe a 13 out of 10? Yeah, 13 and a half. <laughs> I mean, I just want everybody to just remember to, to go to meandies.com, wear some underwear, people. It's comfortable and sanitary. <laughs> We're still not sponsored. Someday. Someday we'll be so huge. All right, man. Well, great job by you. We'll catch you uh, catch you next week. We have a guest next week, and it'll be our first guest with an English accent. So oh, we're excited. Exciting. Yeah, it's a big, big deal for us. Big deal. All Thanks, right. Mike. Bye. Bye, everybody. Take care. Bye.